So let's get started in chapter three in the book of Jonah. Now, I'm hoping, uh, and I think it's true, all of you have been uh, in the, in the study, so you're familiar with what the book is about. But chapter three is where Jonah begins his ministry in Nineveh. Notice how it begins. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. That takes you back to chapter one, verse one, when God had commanded him to go to Nineveh. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I will tell you. If you go back to chapter one, verse two, God did not say that. He just said, go and the evil of the city has come up against me. Now God is specifically telling him, I'm going to give you a message, and we'll see what that is, the content of it. It'll be revealed in a minute that he wants him to tell the people of Nineveh. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. That's exactly the same phrase that began the chapter, and it's just Jonah is now being obedient, for he had resisted what God had commanded, chapter 1. Now he's obedient to what God has commanded according to the word of the Lord. Jonah began to go into the city a good day's journey. I skipped the end of verse 3. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. I thought, uh, you have a copy of this in your notes, but I thought I would show it nonetheless. This, uh, this map, it gives you an idea, and it's really a superb map. It comes from the English Standard Version Study Bible, but it is a superb map of what ancient uh, Nineveh looked like at the time of Jonah. You can see on the east or the left side of your, of your slide there, is the Tigris River, it's one of the major rivers, the Mesopotamian Valley. But there's a small river that flows off, goes to the east, that's the Kosher River, and you can see that the river runs right through the city. That was a very typical thing to do in the ancient world. You built a city around, around a source of water. The other thing to observe about this city, and again, you have a copy of this, is how many gates there are. Remember, the cities of the ancient world, and there were virtually no exceptions to this. The cities of the ancient world were all walled for purposes of defense, and the gates were, of course, the way in which you would enter and exit, but these were fortified gates, very heavily fortified. At night, they would be closed and so on. What was remarkable about Nineveh is how many gates it had. So if you go back to this previous slide here that I wanted to just show you, I can't remember if you have a copy of this or not, but uh, Nineveh's inner wall. We do, Jim, we have a copy of it. Oh, you do, okay. His in, the inner city, city uh, wall of this city was 50 feet wide. Now that's the width of the wall. So it should give you a sense of how fortified this city was. And the wall, the inner wall was a hundred feet high. And the entire circumference, remember what circumference, remember what that word means. The entire circumference, you would start walking and walk the circumference of it. It's an eight-mile walk. And so I, I want to just communicate to you the, the, the size of this city, uh, the structure of this city. And when it says three days, most, and that's how I understand it, most understand that to mean this is the time Jonah spent walking through. It took him three days. Now, not to necessarily walk across the city, but he's walking throughout the city to connect with as many people. The point number two on the slide you're looking at 
it just reminds you at the point when Jonah goes to Nineveh, Assyria is in a period of decline. And that's probably why they are vulnerable and open to a message of revival. Two major plagues had occurred. There, the city and the entire country is racked by famine and there had been a total eclipse of the sun. I mean, that, all of that was in the context of the polytheistic, animistic, religious background. But all of this is going to cause a fear and trepidation and a belief that their gods are angry with them. Well, Jonah is going to explain to them the nature of God and, and the call to repentance, which is, what, um, is, which is what the message is all about. I just wanted to make sure you had a sense of what the city of Nineveh looks like. It is a magnificent city. If you would go to Iraq today, and I wouldn't advise you to do that, but if you would go to Iraq today and go to the city of Mosul, M-O-S-U-L, uh, you might have remember hearing that in the news a lot during the Iraq war. Mosul is the modern city on which Nineveh uh, existed. So they have dug down a little bit to the east of the modern city of Mosul, but they've dug down and done archaeological digs. They found the library, they found the palace, they found bathhouses. We really do have a good idea of what the city of Nineveh looked like, hence that map that you have a copy of. So Jonah is now in the city of Nineveh. And here is his message, the middle of verse 4. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now that's the summary of his message, verse 2, the message I will tell you. This is the message God wanted Jonah to deliver to the Ninevites. This is the message he would have proclaimed as he walked throughout the city for three days. He's telling them this message. Now we'll make a comment on the term overthrown. That, again, we're reading uh, an English translation of Hebrew, but that term overthrown is exactly the same term you see in Genesis chapter 19, verse 21, and in Genesis chapter 19, verse 25 and 29. Those terms are exactly the same Hebrew term, but in Genesis 19, it's referring to Sodom and Gomorrah. So when Jonah used that verb overthrown, that means totally destroyed. It isn't just that we're going to topple the ruler and change administrations. That term is, is stating to the Ninevites, this city is going to be completely and totally destroyed, burned to the ground. Now, I don't know. It, it doesn't tell us that. I don't know if he elaborated on it and explained what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah is going to happen to you. I don't think he did. The point is that verb is the same verb use of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So the, the point is God is going to incinerate Nineveh like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. So what happened? How did the city of Nineveh respond? Look at verse 5. I want you to note three responses. Each one of these responses evidences sincerity. It evidences repentance. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Now, there's no way to in any way diminish this. This is a statement of their faith. I believe we will see many of these people in heaven. I believe they genuinely responded to what Jonah was saying. The second thing they do is they call it a fast. And the third thing, they put on sackcloth. Now, I'm sure you're aware of this, but sackcloth is an ancient Near Eastern 
uh, manifestation or demonstration of mourning and grief and, and despair, they have been confronted with what God has charged them with, from the greatest of them to the least. And what that means is this isn't just a small number of people in the city. This is socially on the socioeconomic ladder for the people from the top of the socioeconomic ladder to the bottom of the economic ladder. This is an all-encompassing, comprehensive way of saying virtually everybody in Nineveh is repenting. So this is an extraordinary revival. It's one of the greatest revivals in human history. And it is in the center of the most pagan, ruthless, violent civilizations that existed in the ancient world. What is that evidence? God's grace. God's mercy and God's compassion on a city that did not deserve it. There's nothing they did to earn this. There's nothing they did to merit it. There's nothing that in any way caused God to say, well, I think I'm going to be really nice and kind to Nineveh because there's a bunch of good people there. There is nothing good in any ethical sense about Nineveh. This is one of the most ruthless, violent civilizations of the ancient world. But God in his grace has chosen to redeem some of the people that lived. Not in the entire civilization, but in one of their key cities, Nineveh. Now, listen, Woody. Um, yes, Woody, go ahead. As we've studied over the years, yes, we used that word sackcloth often, and this is kind of a bunny trail. But is that like burlap? Yes, that would be uh, that would be comparable. When you think of burlap, that would be comparable to what that means. That's right. Thank you. Yep. Now, there's one more part of chapter three because it deals with the leadership. The word reached, now I think we would infer here the word of the Lord, what, what Jonah has been proclaiming, what Jonah has been declaring, reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Now, that, that adds an additional ancient Near Eastern demonstration of mourning and grieving and despair sitting in ashes. So, I mean, this, again, uh, this is, I don't know what other words you, this is absolutely astonishing. This is one of the most powerful individuals in the ancient Near Eastern world responding to a message. And that message is Nineveh is going to be destroyed, annihilated, extinguished. And so here you have the most powerful person in, in, in this empire of Assyria responding with repentance. So, I mean, it's a remarkable demonstration of a human being who is totally depraved responding in God to God's grace. Jim, I have a question in regard to the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, from, from before, while the world was being formed, the three existed. Where is the Holy Spirit in regard to bringing any conviction here to Nineveh? Well, uh, you know, the Bible here in this passage, the Bible's silent on that, but we we would assume, I, I would I would think it would be accurate to assume that the Holy Spirit is involved in this. <laughs> I mean, I, I I don't know how else to answer your question other than that. I mean, no, the, that's that's good. I just you know, we we take him off, we take the Holy Spirit out of the situation, we put him in the situation. 
And in this case, since it permeated the entire city, one would think that it would be the outworking of the Holy Spirit to 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 permeate the entire city this way. So, well, yeah, in his uh, in his in his grace, God is bringing about repentance of people that didn't deserve it, and that's true of all human beings. But I mean, this is what Jonah is so he is so reluctant to let God do this because he knows what his God's like, and he doesn't want to do it. In which we studied earlier in our chapter. But yes, I, I can't imagine that theologically any other way to comment on your question than even though it's not mentioned, we have to infer that the Spirit of God is at work here. Now you have the personal mourning of the leader, uh, political leader in verse 6, but notice he does something else and issued a proclamation published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything i.e. a fast, let them not eat food or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. And so what the people did in verse 5, there's maybe uh, you know not a tight chronology here, but what the king is decreeing is what the people are doing. But notice one other point at the middle of verse 8, let everyone turn away from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? Continuing from the decree, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So you have the political leader issuing this decree, but with it, the word, I don't know how else to say that, but the word of hope. That as we, as we, we accept this message as we believe in this God, as we repent of our sin and violence. Our hope is that God may relent. Relent of what? In 40 days, I'm going to destroy Nineveh. <laughs> Remember, that's the message Jonah's been preaching. And so the, the political leadership says, maybe this God will turn away from his fierce anger and not destroy our city. Because remember, that word overturned, I explained that to you. That means he would totally destroy Nineveh. So how does God then respond? That's verse 10. When God saw what they had did, had what they did, and that means the visible evidence of their repentance, their mourning, sackcloth, etc. How they turned from their evil way, so it's not only going through the acts of repentance, mourning and the king sitting in ashes. God sees their heart. They turn from their evil way. So God is seeing their heart. He is, he is he's seeing what only he can see. Then God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So you have this, this, again, the railroad tracks. You have the divine sovereignty of God. He decrees something. But human responsibility, responsible freedom, there is a repentance. There is a turning from evil. There's a belief in him. And God chooses not to do what he said he would do. Now, let me add something here. He postpones this judgment. 
Whereas mm -hmm. if you go to another minor prophet, the name of that minor prophet is Obadiah, Obadiah, or, uh, yeah, Obadiah. He will detail for us the destruction of Nineveh decades later. This generation is spared, but the next there's coming a generation when that they will not be spared, and God will again destroy and will totally destroy the city of Nineveh. That will be in 612 BC. Uh, and that's recorded for us in another book of the Bible. Well, anyway, so any questions about chapter three? It's it's very simple. <laughs> uh, I do have a question. Yeah, yes, please. <clears throat> so, I mean, you're the historian. You can maybe correct me on this, but I mean, wasn't it true that Jonah did not want to go because he had been for, been foretold that Nineveh was going to, or Syria was going to conquer Israel and, and eventually they did. And so, I mean, the question is, was this, did this conversion stick or did it last or was it a different generation that went on to, to uh, destroy, conquer Israel, or what was the what's the sequence here? That it would be a, it would be a different generation, Jim. That's really a good question. I said Obadiah. I meant Nahum, N A H U M, the minor prophet Nahum, uh, details the destruction of of Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire in actually six twelve B C. So, Jim, the answer to your question is that it would be another generation. So uh, the other part of your comment and question is, is, is perhaps accurate as well. Now, Jeroboam, king, uh, Jeroboam II, the king in, in, in Israel of which, uh, where, where Jonah served as a prophet in the court, um, we're not really sure how much they would have known about some of the prophecies because some of those very specific prophecies come just a little bit later about the Assyrian Empire destroying um, the, the Northern Kingdom. But nonetheless, there's a possibility he may have known that as well as a prophecy of God, which is part of the reason why he, he, uh, he, he wanted God to wipe out the Assyrians. And chapter four, which is the one we'll start here in a minute, that's exactly what he expects God to do. Jonah is going to go sit on a hill and look at the city of Nineveh, expecting God to do what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. But God's not going to do that, as you will see in a minute. So, Jim, I'm not sure if I answered your question or commented on. Yeah, yeah, you did. I mean, this is, I mean, all of the, I mean, the historical blends into this is so interesting. And I'm, my impression always has been of chapter four is that Jonah was, I, I don't know, depressed or sorrowful because he, because Nineveh had been preserved, and ultimately it's still going to conquer Israel. And he's frustrated by that. Yeah, well, I, I, he, he, yes. It's, it's interesting, Jim, because if you would, if you would put a, a label on Jonah's insistence in chapter 4, it is, God, I'm demanding justice. These are horrible people. And if you are, if you were correct, that he may have understood that eventually Syria is going to be one of the empires that wipes out the Northern Kingdom. Uh, if he knew that and understood that, again, he's still assuming God be just. Do what you did to Sodom and Gomorrah, wipe them out. And he is frustrated. And God says, "Just a minute, Jonah. I am a God of justice. 
but I'm also a God of grace and compassion. Amen. That's how the book's going to end. And Jonah, I have the right to show grace and compassion on whomever I want to show grace and compassion. And the object lesson that God uses to teach that lesson to Jonah is quite fascinating. So yeah, you're, you're right on track, I think, with this. Tim, isn't this sort of a microism of, of what could be done? I mean, could happen to any country, including the United States, where you think of the Billy Graham years and how people were more sensitive to church and more people were attending church. And now we find less people attending church and a, sort of a falling away from the things of the Lord based on, you know, certain Gallup surveys and things of that nature. And also just knowing, knowing it as we travel in, in these circles, but do you have a comment? Yeah, on that? yeah. no, that's, that's right. That, I mean, this is the this is the flow of history in terms of nations and civilizations. <laughs> I mean, that yeah, uh, it's one of the real concerns I think a lot of people have about this current uh, uh, state of Western civilization, not just the United States, but Western civilization even more broadly. Well, let's crack into chapter uh, four then. Um, what's the first word of verse one in chapter four? But thank you, Woody. I'm glad somebody was willing to respond to my very difficult question. But the only one I knew. Okay. <laughs> but strong adversity, strong word of contrast. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. What is the it? That's a neuter pronoun. What's it referring to? That the people of Nineveh had repented. As a matter of fact, if you translate that literally, uh, verse 1, the first part of verse 1, but it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. That's exactly, that's exactly the Hebrew. What is exceedingly evil to Jonah? That the Ninevites had repented and that God, in his compassion and grace, had relented on judging the Ninevites. Jonah, I mean, so this, is, I, this is just astonishing to me. Jonah is making an ethical evaluation. Jonah is drawing an ethical conclusion. And his conclusion is, it is evil that God has chosen to show compassion and relenting on his judgment. God should wipe him out. That's justice. That he has not done that is unjust, and it's evil. So Jonah is making an ethical evaluation of a situation that is totally explained only by God's grace and mercy. And the consequence is, and he was angry. With whom is he angry? Nineveh? No, God. So you, you have this profound response to the God's prophet, to the grace of God. You have this profound response from God's prophet at God not being, in his view, consistently just. In a very real sense, you could say, Jonah is shaking his fist at God and saying, this isn't fair. 
these are horrible people, God. These are some of the most violent people. You saw that word used in the previous chapter. These are some of those violent people on earth. And you want to spare them? And so I'm, re I'm reaching an ethical evaluation of you, God, and your actions. You are being unjust, and your, unju your injustice is evil, and I'm angry about it. So here's puny little Jonah, a created human being, angry with the, with the sovereign Lord of the universe. So what does he do? For the second time, he prays. The first time he prayed in the belly of the great fish. Now he's praying again. And he prayed to the Lord. Here's his prayer. Oh, Yahweh, is this not what I said when I was in my country? Israel. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. And you could translate this word because, for, because I knew. You are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in chesed, steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Now, just take a moment and look at verse 2. Look at all the attributes of God that Jonah surfaces. He knew his God. What he is saying is absolutely accurate, theologically sound. And the Bible is filled with all the evidence. Is God a God of justice? Yes. But he's also a God of grace. Is God a God of justice? Yes. But he's also a God of mercy. Is God a God of justice? Yes. But he's also slow to anger. Is he a God of justice? Yes. But he's a covenant-making, covenant-keeping, loyal, loving God, steadfast love. And because of those attributes, he does relent from disaster. And Jonah's a Jew. Jonah knew the history of his people. And he knows that that is exactly how God had dealt with Israel. Up to that point in their history, he had evidenced grace, mercy, slow to anger, and covenant, loyal, steadfast, chesed, steadfast love. And he relented from disaster over and over and over again. And you, he knows his God. And he said, that's why I don't want to go, because I know you're going to spare Nineveh. And I don't want you to do that. So you have a degree, not really of remorse, but of self-pity. He's wallowing in this despair that he has brought upon himself. God didn't do this. He's brought it upon himself. So here's the second part of his prayer. Therefore now, O Yahweh, please take my life from me. And the word for life there is really from nephesh. It's used in, in the first two chapters of Genesis, God breathing life into the human soul. Take my soul, which is the genesis of my life, from me. Why? Because it is better for me to die than to live. Now, I don't know about you, but I am looking at that, and I've read this hundreds of times in my life, I suppose. I still find this absolutely unbelievable. I mean, Jonah is feeling sorry for himself. 
Jonah is wallowing in self-pity, and Jonah is ticked off at God. Why? Because God has shown grace and mercy and compassion, and Jonah doesn't want him. Listen, we're going to see this in the book of Habakkuk, and we start that next week. God is a God of justice, but God's justice is often meted out slowly because he always, always, always is compassionate and gracious. And because he is compassionate and gracious, often people repent. Often people turn back and embrace God because they see what he's like. I mean, I've I've been in public ministry a good chunk of my adult life since the late 70s. I came to Christ in 72. And I've seen that in life after life after life, where people, whatever it is they're struggling with, whatever particular sin they're in bondage to, as they come to Christ, one of the things that I hear over and over again, I knew about Jesus, I'd heard the gospel many times, and I kept refusing it. But finally, I gave in to God. And I'm so thankful that he was patient with me, allowing me to come to terms with my sin and understanding that he alone can solve that problem. That's a compassionate, gracious God. Aren't you thankful that God is not only a just God, but he's also a gracious and compassionate God? Jonah wants instant justice. God says, that's not how I run my universe. And if you demand justice, and that's all you demand, that is not how I run things, Jonah. And so Jonah is going to learn a powerful lesson about the nature of God's compassion through a plant that God is going to allow to shade Jonah sitting in the sun of the Near East. Can I ask a question about 4.3? Of course. Um, is this uh, is this an expression like "Oh, kill me, kill me," um, or is he literally, um, you know, where y- you really don't mean it, but you're just showing um, frustration, or is he sincerely grieved to the point that he would like to be struck dead? Russ, I don't know if I can accurately answer that question. I really mean that uh, mm-hmm. the language. The language of the text isn't really a help here. I mean, it, it isn't. The words mean what they say, and I've embellished a little bit of them. But I think if I were to guess, and it would be a sanctified guess more than anything else, I would guess that he doesn't really mean it. This is, I mean, maybe he does. Maybe he wants God to strike him down with a thunderbolt. I don't know. But my sense is from the way we've seen the character of jo- Jonah develop through the book is that <laughs> he really does know God and he's so frustrated and personally angry at what God has chosen to do. And so the self-pity, it's a little bit like Elijah after he, he has a tremendous oh. victory on Mount Carmel is down at Mount Horeb and says, take my life. I'm done. That's it. I'm the last one. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's that, it's that, it's, it's desperation that results from anger at God. It isn't worth it to represent you. Look at what you do. I don't want to live. So whether he really, really meant that and expected, I, 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 I have my doubts, but I can't prove it. I really can't. I just can't answer that dogmatically. 
Yeah, because I, I in earlier in the um, in the book, he says, "Throw me overboard," like without regard. But that's more sacrificial. Like, well, we're either all going down to the yeah. the, the sea floor, or let's just make it me. And well, yeah, and because he knew he knew why there was a storm. He knew God caused it, and he he knew that these Phoenician sailors. The only way they're going to get out of this is if they throw him overboard. But here, I mean, this is really. This is a little bit like what you see in some of the Psalms, but Jonah is really ticked off at God. I mean, he really is. He is, he is enraged at what God has chosen to do. And so God then asks him a pointed question. Do you well to be angry? Now that's, that's kind of, it's a translation, ESV translation. But that sounds almost like an old English Shakespearean way of answering the question. What God is saying is, in effect, do you really have a right to be angry, John? I mean, do you really have a case, a legitimate case for anger here, Joe? Have you have you really made the case that you have righteous? anger in your heart? And of course, the answer to that is no, but this, this is what happens, because Jonah doesn't answer the question. At least there's no record in the text that Jonah answers the question. So what does he do? Verse 8, Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east of the city now, we know from the geography of this, there aren't mountains, it's in, a, it's in a valley, but there's a hill, not a huge mountain type hill, but there's a hill because it's in about the city's in a valley. And so he's up on that little hill and he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in shade. Now, don't think of a booth of drywall and two by fours. That's not what it means. It, it made of some plants and some some brush or whatever. The main point is to get get um, some shade because, I mean, I've been to the Middle East many times. There is nothing like the Middle Eastern sun. I mean, it is extremely intense because for the most part, you're in a arid climate and it's extremely intense. So he just wants to be protected from the sun till he should see what would become of the city. Now, what does that mean? <laughs> his, his expectation still is that God is still going to destroy Nineveh. So he's kind of sitting outside the city on the east side in that little, not high elevation, but he's sitting a little bit on the hill, looking out over the valley. Okay, God, I'm, I'm waiting now. So what does God do? Now, this is the same language we saw with God appointed the wind that caused the storm that you know, would eventually cause them to throw Jonah overboard. It's the same verb used of God appointing the great fish. So God appointed a plant. So this is God supernaturally creating this plant. Most believe it's, it's very widely called a castor oil plant, whether that means anything to you or not, doesn't matter, and made it come up over Jonah so that it might shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Now, in my Bible, I wrote right after that statement, God's grace. 
That's exactly what it is. God is providing for the comfort of Jonah. And he creates this plant, this huge, very, the Kestrel plant, they're huge leaves that provided instantaneous shade. He didn't have to build this booth. It's a huge place, like big umbrellas. And so what's Jonah's response? He was exceedingly glad. If you go back to verse one of this chapter, he was exceedingly, this was exceedingly evil that God had relented. Now he's exceedingly glad, the opposite end of the emotional spectrum because of the plant. Verse 7, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm. Look at the sovereign providence of God. He appointed the wind. He appointed the fish. He appointed the plant. Now he appoints a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching wind. The fourth sovereign appointment of the providential God. That's the Sirocco that blows out of the east, a hot, dry wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. So, I mean, you see what God has done. In his grace, he provides his plant. But he's teaching Jonah a lesson, an object lesson. And he, in the middle of verse 8, that is Jonah, he asked that he might die. It is better for me to die than to live. Now, again, it gets a little bit back to Russ's question earlier. Does he really mean this or is this self-pity? Is this frustration? It's probably that. But, you know, I've had it, God. I had this luxurious, beautiful casserole plant that made everything so comfortable here. And this worm came, ate the plant. Now the Sirocco wind's blowing. I've had it. God asks the question, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Same question that we saw a couple of verses earlier. Do you do well to be angry? that I have shown grace and compassion to Nineveh? Now God turns the question, do you have the right to be angry about this plant? See, God is, listen, this is really significant. God is equating, same Hebrew word, his anger over God's compassion, which Jonah said was evil, and his anger over, same Greek Hebrew word, over the demise of this plant. Which is more important? Well, to be blunt for Jonah, what was more important was the plant. Because it brought him comfort. It brought him ease and shade from the Near Eastern sun. In a very real sense, God is saying, you're more angry about this than any other emotion you've expressed toward the Ninevites. This is an object lesson. And Jonah responds, <laughs> yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. <laughs> Can you imagine talking back to God like that? 
Yes, God, I have every right to be angry. He was having a hissy. Yeah, right. I mean, this is, but you know, again, to a degree, you and I should be able to identify with this. Because we don't always approve of what God does. We don't always approve of how he runs his universe. And often when he shows grace and compassion, or when sometimes things that are really important to us that really aren't that important, and they're taken from us, we're more angry about that than we are grace and compassion that God has shown toward other people. So he's very defensive in his response to God. He's very self-serving in his, in his defense. Then God, and this is incredible, then Yahweh said, verse 10, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. You could translate that Hebrew word pity, compassion. You have compassion concerning this plant for which you had absolutely nothing to do with this plant. Verse 11. And should not I, God, pity? Let's translate it. Should not I, God, have compassion on Nineveh? That great city? in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. So <laughs> God is really nailing Jonah here. I mean, he is nailing him with his priorities, with his mixed up priorities, if you will. And he's saying to him, uh, Jonah, you have shown more compassion toward a plant than you have toward thousands and thousands of human beings. And if you don't even want to show compassion on these human beings, at least show compassion on the cattle. Because that's how the verse ends. So Jonah if I can put it this way, Jonah has been nailed by Almighty God. He has been condemned in the court of Almighty God. I am the sovereign Lord of the universe. And if I choose to show grace and compassion for people, even violent, horrific people in an ancient civilization, I have the right to do that. But Jonah, you have evidenced more compassion for a plant for which you had nothing to do than you have for people created in my image that are of value and worth for me, infinitely of value and worth to me. And you do not even show compassion for the cattle. Because remember, that word that we, we, we looked at uh, earlier about what God was going to do to Nineveh, is the same word used at Sodom and Gomorrah, because God was going to wipe the city out, incinerate the city, which would have meant every living being, including the animals. And that now the book is over. The book ends. 
it leaves us hanging. Because what's the question you want to ask? Did Jonah repent? <laughs> Did Jonah get it? Did Jonah learn from the object lesson that God had just created for him? Well, to be honest, we don't know exactly, but we believe Jonah wrote the book. We believe this is literally written by Jonah. So if he wrote the book, then I think we would conclude he did repent. He did get the point God was making, and he did relent. And so it's, it's, it's an important lesson applicationally, I think, for you and me today in 2020. Do people have more of a priority in how we rank things than things? Because God is saying to Jonah, I am choosing to show grace and compassion on wicked people. And if I choose to do that, you must have those same values I have. God is a God of justice. But what did Joseph, Jonah say? You're gracious, you're merciful, you're slow to anger, you're a God of covenant love. I know you're like that, and I know you're going to spare these people. So in your notes on page, the very last page, if you want to take a look at that, I've drawn four conclusions from our study of the book of Jonah. And I'd like to read those. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, the very last page. Conclusion from Jonah. Number one, Israel, as with us, should have a missionary zeal and should feel the rebuke of disobedience and indifference. God desired that Jonah become a compassionate messenger. I believe, because I think Jonah wrote the book, I believe Jonah did get to that point. He understood God's compassion. A bigger picture Israel, these are the children of Israel, ancient Israel, was elected to bless the nations. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, in you all the nations will be blessed. Called as a kingdom of priests, instructed to preach to the nations, Jonah manifests these callings. He knew what the Bible taught, the Old Testament text had taught. He didn't want to do it because he knew what his God was like. Number three, God values people despite their sin and their weakness. And that's why praise be to the Lord that he is slow to anger. And he does not deal with you and me. He does not deal with people who haven't trusted Christ yet simply on the basis of justice. He deals with people on the basis of his grace and compassion. And finally, as God manifests compassion and mercy, so should we. That's the lesson Jonah had to learn. And God, I believe, God taught him that lesson through the castor oil plant, where God said, you have shown more compassion toward that plant than you did for people, thousands and thousands of people. And if you don't even want to have compassion for them, at least have compassion for the cattle. And Jonah, I think, is nailed to the wall. So you, you have this this, it's, a, it's one of the most important evangelistic books in the Bible, even though it's in the Old Testament. Because here you see what God is doing. God is interested in reaching people with his message. And the Ninevites were primed for this message. I told you a little bit about the history at that point where they were. 
And God in his grace saved, I have no idea, thousands of Ninevites. I do believe sincerely that we will see many citizens of this city from the time of Jonah in heaven. And that only explained by the grace of God. They didn't earn it. They didn't merit it. They didn't deserve it. But God chose to extend grace to them. And his agent for that grace was Jonah. Jim, I have a question for you. How did um, Jonah qualify as a prophet? Qualify. Oof. I'm not sure what you mean by qualify. Uh, well, it seems he doesn't have a have a heart for a mission field that God has sent him directly to, and so. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if he sends out reluctant debutants, so to speak, or, or <laughs> Jonah doesn't look like, uh, you know, a Billy Graham. Uh, well, no faith mission board would ever accept Jonah. Yeah, you know, he had gone through the interview process. He had been rejected. They would have never allowed Jonah to go in the mission field. You know, he would have filled out the forms wrong. His, everything about him would have said, this is not a guy we want in the mission field. <laughs> but uh, again, you know, God, God chose him. Um, the reason why he chose him, the Bible isn't, isn't clear. So you, using human criteria, Jonah would have failed every one of the criteria. Yet God, you know, God so often chooses people that you and I would never choose to do something that he, he sovereignly chooses. Jonah, uh, and we don't know why. Jonah was experienced. He was a prophet in the court of Jeroboam II. He would have known the law. He would have known the Old Testament. He knew about God. We saw that in how he summarized correctly the attributes of God. But Jonah's heart needed to be changed. And the only way God would change his heart is through the object lessons of the plant. The other thing, though, I think it is really important about the book of Jonah is you and I have no trouble assigning just, just conclusions about people, about nations, about actions, about activities. That's unjust. It's not fair. God, deal with them. God, come on, do it right now. It's time for you to do it. And God's economy is totally different than our economy. What did Jonah say? I know you're slow to anger. And your covenant love, your covenant love is known in Israel. We know what you're like, God, because that's how you've been with us. And I think the grace and compassion that God shows to you and me, and I, in I, my testimony is my life is filled with God's grace and compassion. Therefore, I should show grace and compassion to people as well. So sometimes our demand for instantaneous justice should be tempered with the grace, mercy, and compassion of God. Because I am very thankful, and I think you guys will understand why I say it this way. I'm very thankful that God does not deal with me only on the basis of his justice. Amen. He dealt with me only on the basis of his justice. I would have never come to Christ. I would have never, ever lived long enough to put my faith in Christ in 1972. And so when I would work with young guys, uh, 
in, in the academic ministry I had for many years. That was always the perspective I tried to take. God, you're not done with these guys. I Sometimes I just want to slap them on the side of the head with a spiritual two by four. And yet that's no, they're a work in progress, just like you're a work in progress, Jim. And people that in, in other connections I've had over the years of my life that are unbelievers, that's, it's the same perspective. We have to have that perspective because that's a perspective God has. And there is no greater example of that than how he dealt with Nineveh. They deserved his justice. But he and his sovereignty made the decision to show them grace and compassion. And we're going to see a lot of them in heaven because of that, despite Jonah. <laughs> All right. All right. I'm going to pray and we'll let you go here. Our Father, we're grateful for this uh, study that we've had in Jonah. It's, he's a familiar character, but many people have never really thoroughly studied the book. I hope it's been a blessing to these men to do that. And the tremendous lesson it has about you're not only a God of justice, you're a God of grace and mercy and compassion. Thank you, Lord, that you are. For I know in my own life, if you were not gracious and compassionate, I would have never come to Christ. If you only dealt with me in my life on the basis of justice, and that's true even today in December of 2020, if you only dealt with me on justice on that basis, Lord, there'd be little hope for me. I think every one of us, if we're brutally honest, would agree. So thank you that you are slow to anger. Thank you that you're compassionate, because that is extending that arm of your grace to people to respond to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help these men in their lives to be strong, strong men of faith, men of God who represent you well. Give them that courage and determination to be your disciples, to represent you. So we commit them to you. Thank you for our time together as well in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week, guys. Thank Thanks. you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. You too. Have a good day.